Pastor Rob, welcome to our 1030 service. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can open it up or turn it on to uh, where we have been for the last three or four weeks in this big block of teaching, uh, well-known, Jesus' most, um, I guess, comprehensive, well-known block of teaching that really opens the New Testament, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're in Matthew chapter 5. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. I said uh, to you guys a couple, uh, I guess just last week um, we were talking, we fully got into the guts of this um, teaching, got through um, the great Beatitudes and, and the and then the great URs, the salt and light, really, really preparing, uh, giving a big vision picture, the declaration of independence of the Christian life, and, and then we get into the Constitution, you might say, in um, the guts of this sermon, and I'm, or of this overall sermon, and I said that Jesus, you know, he gets right into the guts of human experience. He wants to talk about the moral law of God. Last week, we talked about anger um, as a, a powerful reality that we, our Christian life, must come to heads with. And, we, and, and our, our, our lives are, are shown and demonstrate that we really are followers of Jesus. Our faith is really lived out along the lines of human anger. That's the underlying intent of the sixth commandment. Jesus said, you shall not murder the moral law of God. And today he's going to dive into another messy, challenging, gutsy area Thou shalt not commit adultery, which is really talking about something really even deeper than adultery, but um, the idea of sex and uh, marriage and its purposes, the underlying uh, purpose of the seventh commandment. But let me say this before we get into it about not just today's teaching, but again, this uh, larger sermon. Does the moral law of God have a place in the Christian life? I want to keep asking that question at least over five weeks as we get through chapter five. Because that's what Jesus is answering. And a lot of people think, you know, even over the course of 2,000 years and today, that because Jesus, the Lord and Savior, God's Son and God the Son and the Son of God, came into the world to fulfill the requirements of the law, both in his life, which he did through obeying all of the commands that you and I couldn't, and in his death, because he paid the penalty of, of disobedience in his death, that is my disobedience and yours, he fulfilled all of the stipulations of the law on your behalf and on my behalf, and when we trust him, then we benefit from that great act of love and compliance to the law, both in his life and his death, and that is true. So what a lot of people have thought then, in, over the course of Christian history is, listen, well, then the moral law of God is not important anymore. And Jesus is saying, no, it's very important. I did not come to abolish, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, it's the verse of 17, I did not come to abolish the law of God, but Jesus came to radicalize it in the lives of his followers as a progressive transformation of their heart fulfills its intent and its motive and its purpose. Okay, that's what we're really talking about. I don't come to the moral law of God to become a Christian. I don't fulfill the moral law of God. You know, God says jump, and if I jump that high, I'm accepted. I don't come to the moral law of God to gain God's acceptance, but as a loved and valued son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus, I'm to fulfill out the moral law of God, in fact, in a way that it was never, ever um, achieved in the Old Testament. This is the beauty uh, in, in, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, I want to take it. 
I just want, I don't want, I don't want to just ensure that you don't commit adultery. I don't want to just ensure that you don't um, commit murder. I don't want you to even, I want you to be able to live a life above even the level of carried anger in your relationships. That's radicalization. I don't want you just to never, if you're married, to have relationship with someone who's not your spouse. I don't even want you to entertain that thought in your life. That's the radicalization of the moral law of God, right? So we're talking about. In today's message is on, um, it's thou shalt not commit adultery is the command he's looking at, but as I've been saying over these weeks and will continue to say, Jesus is looking at the negative. A lot of these laws are, are phrased in the negative because they're protective. They're protecting something, human relationships. But I'm gonna talk about the, what the, the positive truth that Jesus is bringing to light in this in a message called sex and marriage, which is what he's really talking about in this passage. Now, sermons at best, even if they're great sermons, and I don't know that I've ever given a great sermon ever, but even if you hear great sermons, they're, they don't, they're, 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 it's not a vehicle for giving you everything that's in a text. You've got to work harder than that. So I'm going to give you some quick uh, uh, helps if you're interested in this subject single or married, and sex and marriage. Two, two resources that I may quote indirectly here. Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, has a great chapter on sex. You could read it if that's of interest to you. Um, but really, this book, every the whole book, uh, it, it would be of value to you. And, and it's new, maybe less than 10 years old. This book, The Mystery of Marriage, Mike Mason's probably 30 years old. I've probably done my 23 years of ministry, maybe 100 weddings. I don't know. If I've done 100 weddings, I've given this book out 100 times because it's so, so good. And this has a chapter also on sex, but really it has, it looks at the bigger picture. And I would say single, married, married and single, again, whatever, uh, uh, any category, you would benefit from reading these books if you so desire. Now, with that, let's dive in uh, to this passage. Did I read the passage yet? Okay, just check it. Okay, good. <laughs> Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Okay, here we go. You have heard that it was said, words of Jesus, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with him, her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, let me apologize if this is the first time you've ever been to church, because what a way to start, okay? And if your friend brought you here today, they had no idea what I was going to talk about, okay? So, now, my first point is not actually from this text. My next point will be. But it's from the larger text of the entire Bible. But I think it will be helpful in us understanding what is really being said here. So the point is this. The Bible has a high, not a low, view of sex. The Bible has a high, not a low, view of sex. Now just think about our culture for a minute. We live in, I don't need to spend more than a minute on this for us, a hyper-sexualized culture, right? I hardly need to say anything. It's everywhere, and it's used to sell everything. It's used to sell clothes. It's used to sell food. It's used to sell entertainment. It's used to sell 
sports, right? We'll see some of that today, right? It's amazing. People tell me that they watch the Super Bowl um, more for the commercials than they do for the actual game, right? Raise your hand if that's true. Of course, no one's honest in church, so we won't get, okay. Um, Well, let me tell you something. Get ready, okay? Because whether it's potato chips or the Ram, Dodge, whatever, there's probably going to be some skin in it, okay? Welcome to, uh, it's sex is cheap and it's easy. And listen, it looks for you. There was a day in, 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 in our day, in our grandparents' day, in somebody's day, where to find, you know, uh, uh, unhealthy sexual uh, uh, stuff, you had to go to dark rooms and you had to go to parts of the city and you had to do things that, you know, underhandedly. Well, that day is long gone, my friend, okay? Not only is it ubiquitous and everywhere, it comes to you, okay? I buy everything except for food, maybe this is true for a lot of us, on the internet. I buy furniture on the internet, I buy books on the, I mean, except for food, I buy it on the internet. And I can say in the, 20 years the internet's been around or whatever the number's been, I, I don't shop for women's clothes, okay? I mean, maybe I bought my sister this or, a, 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 you know, I, don't, I shop for stuff that guys shop for, but somehow I get underwear ads all the time, okay? <laughs> so it's coming, women's, by the way. All right, it's, coming, <laughs> it's coming your way is what I'm trying to say, okay? It's coming your way and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, I would say this to you too. Sometimes we think, Christians, we think, you know, the world is so bad in the good old days of the 1970s or 50s or whatever. And, and the truth is, not a lot has really changed when it comes to the, you know, in Jesus' day, the, the culture, if you read carefully the New Testament, it was as promiscuous or more than in our own. Now, Judaism, the Jewish religion, was this nice little cocoon of attempt to live a moral life. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, Right? The book of Acts, the, the letters of Paul that reflects the culture. This culture was, was as sex crazy and, and dysfunctional uh, as ours by a, 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 you know, by a number of powers. Okay? And the thing about that is this. The result, here's my point. The Bible has a high, not low view of sex. That as a result of a lot of what the Bible says... There's a lot of negative sex talked about in the Bible, right? In a lot of the letters, Jesus, Paul, and the other writers, because they're responding to the misuses and abuses of sex. We could talk about it. Romans chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 4. We could go on. I'm not going to go into it. But those of you who know the Bible know there's a lot of places in the Bible, Old Testament and New, where the Bible is talking about sex in a negative way. Here's the problem in that. As a result of all that talk about sex in a negative way, about the abuses and the misuses, those of us who are trying to get some kind of grasp, the larger idea that sex was actually a good thing and a glorious thing created by God for a purpose has been overwhelmed in a sense in our collective consciousness because of all the negative talk about sex in the Bible. Let me give you a quick analogy okay, uh, about my own life. Uh, relative not to sex, but to the other big uh, preoccupation in our culture, which is food, okay? I I was a kid. When I grew up, I I had, I didn't know this, an undiagnosed um, um, food allergy, okay? Now, this is back in the day. I know it's more popular today to have food allergies with kids. But I had an undiagnosed food allergy. And um, as a result, 
I didn't know I had it. My parents didn't know I had it. But I would occasionally, I'm talking about five, six, seven, eight, I would get sick. And when a little kid's world, I mean, it's like the end of the world, a violent sick throw up. And, and here's the thing. We didn't know what was making me sick. So we gasped, or your brother, my brother would say, ah, you're just a baby, and whatever the case may be, right? And it, it, a lot of shame associated with that because you didn't know what it was. But here's what happened. And I was a picky eater too, so I, I admit that, but I got sick. Well, here's what's happened. One of the most traumatic things in my life as a little kid was going to somebody else's house to eat. Now, my own house, I knew I, I, I test drove peanut butter. I test drove whatever. I could figure it out. But someone else says, come over for lunch. Listen, it was traumatic. I had to scan the table. And I know what that is, and I know what that is, because I didn't know it was making me sick. And, it was, and, it, and listen, I didn't, we didn't figure it out by... Uh, by um, elimination until I was almost a teenager, okay, what my allergy was, but it was so hard ingrained in me, right? To me, if you would have asked me, if I was honest as a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old, I would have said, listen, food is dangerous, right? And you got to be very careful. Food, listen, food is not dangerous, but to me it was dangerous, right? This is what Jesus is, is combating here. Sex is not fundamentally a bad thing. Sex is fundamentally not a dirty thing that's supposed to be associated with God's judgment. It can be dangerous, of course it can be. But it was originally created as a glorious gift by God with a grand purpose. We'll see it in a minute, even beyond pleasure in marriage, beyond that. And Jesus, in this little old passage, is attempting to restore what it really is all about. Adultery is serious, right? I mean, this is kind of hyperbole. If a, if you, if you, you know, if a man looks at a woman this way, cut your arm off and poke your eye out. I mean, this is Jesus, right? Adultery is serious because marriage is serious. Think of how the Bible opens. The opening story of the Bible. There's only one Bible, right? I mean, the opening story of the Bible is a story about marriage. It's the story about sex in marriage. Be fruitful and multiply. And the opening story of the Bible ends before we get into the fall and all everything else in chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and the woman, and they were naked, and they were before God, and there was no shame, okay? It's not only the opening story of the Bible, that's one thing, but it includes the purpose statement of the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply was a purpose statement reiterated in the covenant given to Abraham to bless those who bless you and fulfill the earth, reiterated to Isaac, reiterated to Jacob, and in a manner of speaking, reiterated by Jesus on the great mountain in Matthew chapter 28, right? The purpose statement of the Bible is tied to love and sex. And let me say this too quickly, you know. The Bible has a high, not a low view of sex. Some people would say, I don't know if this is your story. I didn't grow up in the church. Some of you did. And they tell me this. When I grew up, sex was only for procreation. That's what it's for. That's what the Bible teaches. No, it doesn't. Have you ever read the Song of Songs? Right? Oh my gosh! Unbelievable. Have you ever heard a sermon series? Probably not. Because if I were to actually go into that book right now without warning, like months and family ministries or whatever, they'd throw me out of here. You'd be shocked. 
Because it's not only a marriage about, or a book about the love in marriage, I'm talking about the sex in marriage. It gets down to the details and it's written in poetry only because if it was written in prose, it would, it, it would blame, you couldn't handle it, right? It's what it's talking about. And no one's having kids in the Song of Songs. It is about, in the covenant of marriage, it is about sex in marriage. You, some of you, if I were to do that today, I'm not gonna do it. You'd be shocked. Some of you would be offended. And some of you would say, that's the first time I've actually enjoyed a sermon in church. Well, you know. <laughs> okay. Point one is over. Ready? God created the parts. He created them for pleasure in the love. But the love inside of marriage points to something even greater than itself. My second point. Sex is not a consumer good but a covenant good, okay? It's a covenant good. Why has the culture, why has sex, which has become, is by God, created by God as a beautiful and wonderful thing, why has it become so cheap? Why has it become so dirty? Why has it lost its meaning? Because, we, because we've been using it in the wrong context. Sex is not a consumer good. Sex is not something that fell out of the gift tree from God to be used as an independent good. Sex is something that's supposed to happen in the, in the context of a covenant. Now, some of you don't know what a covenant is. So let me give you a couple quick definitions because it's important, not just for marriage. Isn't this called the new covenant? Okay, it's an important word. Okay. Bible dictionary first. And a covenant is an agreement enacted between two parties which make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions in advance, right? I'm making a commitment. I'm going to do this, right? That's kind of what the marriage vows for, for, for richer or poorer in sickness and in health. That's a covenant because you know you are going to get sick and you are going to find your spouse uh, uh, not attractive and, and on and on, but I'm gonna, it's a covenant, Right? Of course, the Bible uses this as the major idea or metaphor, covenant, to describe the relationship between God and people. As such, covenant is the instrument that establishes the rule or kingdom of God and therefore a valuable lens through which one can recognize and appreciate ideal biblical community. Now, set a more street way, or, or this is out of Mason's book. What is covenant? An enduring relationship. This is what we're really talking about. Founded not on one's feelings, but on one's commitment. Where love grows beyond its freshman and sophomore years, where things like patience, forgiveness, and greater intimacy are developed. Right? You, you, you know this is true. Um, but there are people, there's a lot of studies that have been done that people who have had multiple sexual partners whether it's before marriage, during marriage, which Jesus is talking about, or after marriage, that in multiple sexual partners, what they have, when they've talked about people, about those experiences, they're covering the same ground in multiple relationships. And when it comes to the development of love and, and the satisfaction, both in love and in sex, it actually goes down, not up. More is not more, because love, sex, is a, not a consumer good. It doesn't fall down on the gift tree that's an independent good, more is more. It happens in the context of an enduring relationship, right? That's what Jesus is saying, and that's why he's so fired up about adultery. 
Not because he's a killjoy, but not because he doesn't want you to be excited and happy and fulfilled. It's because he does. And he's saying, unless you understand that sex, Tim Keller uses this word, so interesting, so Keller-like. He said, listen, sex is an emotional um, commitment apparatus that actually takes, is used inside of marriage to deepen and develop the love between two people. And when it's used that way, it accomplishes a kind of depth and breadth that it was meant to, and satisfaction. But when it's used outside of that context, you think more is more and prettier and and beautiful and, and two is better than one or whatever you think, right? And those things aren't true, okay? They turn out to be not true to the nature of how you and I are made and what sex is. Now, what does this all have to do, covenant, is a, sex is not a consumer good, but a covenant with sex. It has a lot to do with it. A lot to do with it. Um, because what he's basically saying is this. Sex in a marriage. And I already said in my first point, it is also designed for pleasure. That's bad theology to think it's not. But fundamentally, in a growing marriage, it's a way to give and to grow love not simply a way to experience pleasure. Now look at this passage, looking at the clock here. This passage, 1 Corinthians 7, was absolutely, if you, it was radical in Paul's day, but it's still radical in our own day. This is a sexual ethics in Paul. But think about this verse before I read it. In Paul's day, he's talking about sex and marriage. I'm just going to read two verses. But in Paul's day, a woman... Okay, was property. A woman did not have rights. She couldn't vote. She, couldn't, um, uh, she could not take advantage of education, of public education. A woman was her husband's property. There's guys that come to Jesus, I think it's in Matthew 19, and they say, listen, um, it's about divorce. They say, Look, we have a question for you. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Matthew, I think it's Matthew 19. In other words, if, if we don't like her, if, she's her you know, if she doesn't cook good anymore, if, she's, if she doesn't look good anymore, can he divorce her for any reason, which you'd think is a crazy question today, but it was asked because a woman was property. But even in that day, and Paul didn't have the power to change the jurisprudence of his day, right? He's just giving it to you. As, here's what he said, if you're a Christian. Talking about sex. The wife does not have authority over her own body. So far, all the guys are like, amen, right? Okay. But yields it to her husband. Oh, hear, hear, right? All right. In the same way, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife, okay? This is radical. He's talking about sex in the larger context. Now, do not deprive each other. What does he mean by saying, listen, you don't own your body, She doesn't own her body. And if you don't have to deprive each other, it means this. That in a sense, you are to yield to your spouse's desires. Your body is not your own, right? Wow. This is radical teaching. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control, okay? What he's saying is this. Yes, sex was designed for pleasure, but it's more than that. It's designed to develop love, and it's done as an act of self-giving. The husband's body doesn't belong to himself, neither does the wife's, right? And what Jesus is saying here, 
okay? When he gets down to verse 20. When I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully. Now, what is he not saying here? There's like five sermons in here, but let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that you and I should not find people, whether you're married or not, of the opposite sex attractive. And if you find people, see, this is, goes back to the sex is high, has a high view of sex, the Bible has a high view of sex, not a low. That, you, that, that if you find people of the opposite sex attractive, that's a sin. And when you go to Wegmans today and you look at a beautiful woman or a beautiful a handsome guy or whatever the case may be and to see them and to respond, you've sinned against God, right? That's not what it says at all. In fact, that's a God-given um, part of being a human being. God gave you and gave me the ability to find other people attracted. And if that wasn't true, there'd be almost no married people in this room today, right? Let's be honest. We don't have arranged marriages today, right? What he's saying in this passage Verse um, 27, 8. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, if you unpack that verb in the Greek, it means this, in order to experience a level of desire and satisfaction. What he's saying is this. If you look at someone, maybe it's the second time or the third time or the fourth time, but it's different for everybody. But if you look at a person in order to satisfy a selfish desire, all right, I'm going to enjoy this person in a sexual way in my mind and I'm going to do it without their permission and without their participation. It's a selfish act. It then becomes, remember, sex is a covenant good to people, not something you do selfishly to satisfy yourself. That's why it's wrong. In fact, some people would say, one of a Bible teacher and, and, and writer that I admire, I, I've never heard this, or he said that verse 30 is actually talking about masturbation, cutting off your hand. Now, I don't know if that's really what Jesus meant. It's pretty radical. But I can tell you for sure there's no question this passage, an application of this teaching would have to do with um, pornography in our day, right? How could you not say if a man or a woman looks at someone else in order to experience some kind of desire without their participation, without their permission, it's an individual act. How could you not Say, I read this article. Uh, it was written by a guy from Pepperdine. It's called Pornography, the New Narcotic. And in this article, he talks about, some of you would know this, he, he looks at um, cocaine, which is a stimulant. He looks at heroin, which is an opiate. And then he looks at pornography. There have been studies now in brain chemistry. And they say, listen, in, in, in pornography, what happens to people, not casual users necessarily, although probably so, but of addiction where they studied it, is that they have the combination, both of a stimulant and an opiate, the combination, and they call it a poly drug, okay? Those who are addicted to pornography. And this, 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 these statistics are five years old. 1.9 million people are cocaine users. That is, they're not they use it once in a year, but they're cocaine users. Two million in the United States of America are heroin opiate users. Again, these statistics are five years old. Compared to 40 million regular users. Not occasional, regular users of, of pornography. And what, they, and what these studies will also tell you in this great article, I can give it to you if you want, is this that as they've talked to people who have gone through these experiences, not only has their, um, 
the level of which they've experienced, let's say, satisfaction or even love, gone down with multiple partners. But in some people who are what they call serious addicted to pornography, this is what there's a name for. I forget the name of it. They 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 are no longer. Um, it's very difficult for them to even have real relationships with another person. It becomes increasingly difficult because what's happening in the brain and the mind with images has a block when it comes to a real person. And this is what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus a killjoy? Oh my gosh, no. Was sex, is sex an evil and dirty thing by its design? Absolutely not. It's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. And it finds its meaning out of an enduring relationship. And Jesus is so hardball, nuts, uh, you know, hard speaking, you know, cut your hand off. And he doesn't really mean to cut your hand off and to poke your out. He's saying, listen, get serious about this because I want you to enjoy it. I want you. It was created for your enjoyment. And it also points to something better. Last point. I'm out of time here. Real love stems from the heart and is characterized by self-giving, okay? Real love stems from the heart and is characterized by self-giving. I think most, I probably don't need to convince anybody that Jesus isn't really encouraging people to cut their hands off and to poke their eyes out. I don't think anyone believes that in the history of, of, of scriptural study, okay? It's a dramatic figure of speech, to encourage a rigorous self-discipline, right? To protect this relationship, the sex in marriage, from being poisoned, right? But, but, he's saying something much more than that, okay? He's gonna use sex in marriage to talk about the Christian life itself, Right? Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. One of the bases for this sermon, I mean the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus is contrasting the wrong way of righteousness and the right way. The wrong way is the, 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 the way of the Pharisees and he said, listen, unless your righteousness is, exceeds their style, you'll never enter into the kingdom of God. But what Jesus is saying by that and he's, and he's bringing to life in these sermons, he's not saying, it's not this tough my way or the highway. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the way that they're presenting, which is a righteousness from the outside in, Matthew 23, if you're a note taker, it doesn't work because righteousness from the outside in actually does not create a renovated heart. It creates a hard heart, right? And what he's saying is, listen, it's ironic, maybe it's even sarcastic. He's saying, listen, I don't want you to commit real adultery. I don't want you to commit adultery in the heart. Call that lust. But let me tell you the wrong way to deal with it. You can cut your arm off, your hand off, your leg off. Listen, you can poke both your eyes out. You can cut other body parts off if you want to, okay? But let me, and if you do that, you can prevent yourself from actually committing adultery. And if you poke your eyes out, you can prevent yourself perhaps from adultery in the heart to a degree. But either one of those radical surgeries will not change the human heart. That's what he's saying. He said, you really want to deal with this problem? You need a revolution in your heart. The only a transformed heart will bring about the right kind of righteousness. And the love of marriage and sex, which is a form of love in marriage, is designed to point to something even greater. Okay? Ephesians. Well, listen carefully. As I say, there's so much in here. 
okay? I'm, I'm fire hosing it with you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why does the Bible begin with a man and a woman and the marriage covenant? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and his father. Wow, it goes all the way back to Genesis 2. And be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, marriage and sex. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church, right? Isn't that unbelievable? He's saying, listen, covenant is the whole way in which we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is the new covenant, right? And the new covenant is this. God gave, in the person of Jesus, not only in, in, the, in his son, God the son, he not only gives his mind to you, he not only gives his heart to you, he gives his body to you, right? That's what he did on the cross. He's called the bridegroom, and we're called his bride, okay? And what he's saying, what Paul is bringing together is, listen, Marriage is a covenant, just like the covenant, the agreement that God makes with us. And it's in the context of that covenant, right, that the love inside of that covenant, not only the giving of minds, the giving of hearts, but the giving of bodies creates the real thing, okay? And when you step out of that covenant, and use it as an independent good, it's not only not used the way it was designed, but it's going to work against the very things that you want. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to take communion as we think about these verses, right? That Jesus, right, in a manner of speaking, is giving himself to us, mind, heart, and body, so we're going to hand these out, hold on to them, okay, and we will take them together in just uh, a minute. Father, thank you for these moments. I pray for your blessing as we prepare our hearts to share in this table. In Jesus' name, amen.